You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, October 21st, 2009, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me, as always, are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Happy Apple Day, everyone. Apple Day. It is Apple Day. Celebrated mainly in the United Kingdom. In the United Kingdom, because Apple is a, a very American kind of thing. As American as apple it pie. Think so, right? Apple pie. Johnny Appleseed. Yeah. Apple Day. Celebration of apples and oranges. Any particular kind of apple, or is it just any kind of apple? Well, I mean, anything having to do with apples. It can be uh, large or small apples, apple games they play in gardens, juices and ciders are made. Evan, let me ask you a question. Yeah. How do you like them apples? <laughs> <laughs> that was good, Steve. If you wanted something a little more scientific. Always. October 23rd. Do you know what October 23rd is? Well, Mole Day is October 23rd. It's celebrated amongst chemists in North America between 6.02 a.m. and 6.02 p.m. Ah. Now, 6.02 on October 23rd. Have you put it all together yet? Have you figured yeah, it out? Yeah, 6.02 to the 23rd power is all we got. There you number. go. Yeah. Hey. Defining the Very number good. of particles in a mole. And there you have it. So how do you, you like them apples? <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So Rebecca is uh, still traveling around the Orient, but we will actually get a report from her later on in the program. We also, I should say, have an interview coming up with James Randi. Uh, first, a couple news items. Uh, apparently, the universe is trying to destroy the Large Hadron Collider from the future. Huh? Right. Yeah, that, this is one of the, oh, one boy, of the that wackier. Was, that, that article was ridiculous. <laughs> it's uh, Yeah, it was pretty, pretty bizarre. But remember last year, they were talking about the LHC and how that it was going to create black holes or strange matter. It's going to destroy the, the Earth. Well, now we got two scientists that are basically they're saying that we have nothing to worry about because – Influences from the future apparently are going to are propagating back in time to sabotage the LHC, preventing the creation of any dangerous particles, kind of like a Terminator for Higgs particles. If uh, you forget about all this LHC stuff, LHC, Large Hadron Collider, is a super collider created by CERN and scientists all over the world for the past 15 years and uh, more than $9 billion. It's the biggest physics experiment ever built. And when fully operational, will hurl subatomic particles like protons around and around an 18-mile underground tunnel at energies of 7 trillion electron volts. And then they smash them together and they check out the, the debris and hope that it's interesting. And one of the things that they hope is among this debris will be this uh, the so-called Higgs boson, also known as the God particle, which is uh, hypothesized to imbue all of matter with mass. Now, the LHC was supposed to be up, boot up last year. Remember last year? Yeah. Was, was it like August? Was day? We were all yeah. like psyched. Had a little leak. But uh, they had a problem called the magnetic quench, which is just the abnormal termination of a, magnetic, a magnet operation. The quench actually melted the connection between two of their giant uh, magnets and also explosively released uh, some liquid helium. And, and that was just, unfortunately, one of the many de- delays and problems with the LHC. Uh, in fact, it's now more than two and a half years uh, late for when it was supposed to originally be fully operational, at least according to uh, a CERN 2005 annual report prediction. 
But now this station is fully operational. <laughs> it's getting there. They're, they, they, the hope now is that it will be operational uh, in about five weeks or so. But you would think that delays like this would be kind of normal, right? For such a an incredibly complex inter- instrument. Oh yeah. I mean, look at the delays. Look at the delays and problems for the International Space Station or any number of science projects. Our website was delayed that much. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> hey, hey, point. right? But now you got these scientists. Uh, Holger Beck Nielsen of the Niels Bohr Institute in Copenhagen and Masao Ninomiya at the um, of the Yukawa Institute of, for Theoretical Physics in Kyoto, Japan, they're saying that they can mathematically prove that nature will somehow ripple backwards through time to stop the LHC before it can create the God particle. Dr. Nielsen recently said that it must be our prediction that all Higgs-producing machines shall have bad luck. Luck? Wait a minute. Is that a scientific term in, in the Niles Bohr Institute? Or something? I'm, I'm, I'm really at a loss. Yeah, bad that. luck. They, they, they've, they've quantified bad luck, apparently. I want to hear about other scientists' reactions to this. I mean, this is really them tipping their hand that they are unscientific. Well, but, well yeah, you're yeah. right. I've got – I've I tried to find some um, – some scientist reactions. I, I found one, and uh, it really helped me kind of figure out what was going on here. But the, the the other interesting thing that they talk about is that they said that they could test their hypothesis, which is always a great sign when a scientist says that here's a test, that's really good. Uh, but uh, their test is that basically you would shuffle a virtual million-card deck of cards in which all but one say something like do the experiment and only one out of a million says don't do the experiment so what what they propose is that you randomly pick a card and they believe that by picking the no experiment the very rare no experiment card could be it actually could be one of the ways that the universe manifests its bias for a no higgs universe i totally don't get any of what you just said (laughs) i don't get it but wait, no, no. One more point, though. The the hard part, though, is that you would have to really mean it. The people, the scientists at CERN, would have to really mean it when they say that they would do whatever the cards said. They have to take a one in a million chance that right. they do not do. Which the is ridiculous, of course, because there's no way that they're going to test uh, these wacky ideas and roll the dice on on something like that. It's just crazy that that. So it's really a non-test. But do you think, Bob, that these guys, this is kind of a tongue-in-cheek thought experiment? Are they serious? Like, doctor. So, the, uh, first of all, you always have to say these guys could be being quoted out of context and not being represented fairly. You know, in this Fox News report, Doctor Nielsen, Doctor Nielsen is quoted as saying, "One could almost say that we have a model for God. He rather hates Higgs particles and attempts to avoid right. them." Right. I mean, those kind of statements sound to me like they're not taking this that seriously. Yeah, you know, the impression I got. I read a bunch of a bunch of news items about it, and I didn't. I never really got the impression that. That this is a tongue-in-cheek thing. I think they they really believe this. That that's my impression. My reaction to this, just initially after just reading it, was that it, that it made no sense. That, that doesn't the Higgs boson already need to exist for this to be true? So you know, mm. so it's kind of bizarre because if if you create a Higgs boson, then, then the theory is correct, and the Higgs field permeating the universe gives mass to everything. You know, maybe the problem is not creating the Higgs, but actually the, the discovery itself. Yeah, just us knowing about right, it. Right, there's somehow. some bias, some universal bias against actually, you know, discovering it and a- absolutely proving it, which, you know, which is weird and s- kind of silly. Yeah, but that, that, 
then you could start getting into all sorts of weird philosophical questions like is there actual difference with empirically knowing something or just believing in it like what if we lied to a scientist and said we proved the Higgs and then that person actually believes that we empirically know it what's the difference it's ridiculous it it really is but if you want a a more technical objection I try to get dig into some of the technical uh, objections that that uh, at least uh, one scientist has this is Sean Carroll from Discovery's blog called Cosmic Variance. But one big technical objection that makes a lot of sense is that these scientists are using um, – are you guys familiar with uh, imaginary numbers? Yes. Mm-hmm. Square, square, square root, root of minus one. one. Yeah. It, yeah. Right. They really make no sense because how could you take the square of negative one? I mean it really makes no sense. But clearly it's, it works in math and in physics. This is – it it's a valuable concept. And it, it, it works. It, it is clearly tremendous value from the, this concept. But the idea that, that there could be a, a physical manifestation of, of, of an imaginary number or the way these scientists, they actually use an imaginary component to some of their theories, uh, to, to the action, which is a, a, a physics principle. Um, so they, they th- they're throwing in an imaginary component in there, which uh, to me is – I'm very uncomfortable with, act- with, do- with doing that. And uh, the scientists themselves, here's a great quote regarding this whole idea. The scientists themselves said the following, Our model with an imaginary part of the action begins with a series of not completely convincing but still suggestive assumptions. So so clearly the genesis of this whole idea is incredibly speculative. Okay, maybe they're just really speculating wildly. Or again, you could think of this as like we talked recently about – the epidemiology of yes. a the zombie apocalypse, right. right? Where you start with a kind of a, a wacky, fantastical idea, but then you proceed in a very rigorous scientific manner from that point forward, again, to its logical conclusion. So they're saying, what if the universe is trying to keep us from finding discovering the Higgs, Higgs particle? Right. You know, and then go from there. But, but starting with crazy sort of ends the game. Right. Pretty much, but uh, who knows what? Uh, yeah. Unless they turn out to be right, in which case they'll be fucking right. Genius, yeah, right? that, that, that's genius. a Nobel Prize, but uh, I don't <laughs> think uh, Cer- I don't think CERN's going to do the uh, the test, so they got to come up with another test. Yeah, it's also proposing a sort of a solution to a non problem. It's like, why is the LHC having so many problems? Because it's freaking complicated. Right. right. We don't need some to propose time traveling Higgs particles or whatever to, to figure out why. The LHC is having delays. It's having delays because it's a complicated piece of Exactly. Machine. Here's it's what this really... article reminded me of. When the, when the Hubble first went up, remember it was out of focus and the first pictures came yeah. back all fuzzy and mm-hmm. stuff. This... Yeah, the Hubble hubbub. Spherical aberration. Yeah. I tried looking it up online and I couldn't find an article. I recall reading an article in the early 90s when, when this happened. Someone was claiming that could, because the Hubble was going to peer into the, you know, into the earliest moments of time and so forth. And this was somehow... Mm. God's hand in it that he does not want you to see what creation was like back at the early time. So he made an argument effectively that, you know, this, this is basically, you know, God is interfering and God has made the, the Hubble yeah. telescope be out, of, be out of focus. And, you know, that kind of sm- smacked me in a similar way, this story and that one many, many years ago. Well, let's go on to something a little bit more down to earth. Uh, recent study published in the journal Complementary Therapies in Medicine, compared the effectiveness of copper bracelets, two different kinds of magnetic bracelets, and then a demagnetized control bracelet in the treatment of osteoarthritis. And guess what they found? (laughs) Zero difference. No difference. What they found consistent among all people who bought these things (laughs) 
was that their wallets were, were lighter to about the same degree. <laughs> right. This is actually a crossover study. So they had 45 people wear each of the four bracelets for six weeks each and then rate their pain. And there was no difference. You know, the, interestingly, what I didn't realize is that this is actually only the second study looking at copper bracelets for arthritis. Really? I did a PubMed search on, on copper bracelets, and, and actually there was just two studies, this one and the one from 1976. That's it. Every, all, everything else was just uh, commentary or, or review. The one in 1976 said it showed, quote-unquote, some benefit, uh, but n- nothing dramatic. This one, dead negative. Not surprising. There really isn't much prior plausibility um, to the copper bracelet thing for arthritis. There are more studies with the magnetic bracelets, and this literature is more noisy. But you know what the big problem is with studying magnetic bracelets in a double-blind manner? It's easy to test whether you have it or not. It's really hard to blind them, right? You you reach into into your pocketbook for your keys, and you'll find out if that bracelet (laughs) is magnetic or not. So yeah, so that's sort of hampered these these studies, and so there's more you know sort of weekly positive studies with the magnetic stuff, whether bracelets or or, or braces or whatever. Uh, there was one study I found that where it looked at magnetic bracelets for knee and hip pain. So it's not even near the part of the body that's supposed to be benefit, and that showed a positive effect. To me, that says. That's a false positive, right? I mean, there's just no plausibility there. You know, wearing a bracelet is going to help your knee pain. So that just shows sort of, I think, the, the problem in blinding these studies and that you're just measuring placebo effects. But in any case, if you put that aside, the, the, if you just look at the literature at face value, there have been a number of systematic reviews which essentially show no effect, right? That the, there's insufficient evidence to say that this is effective for anything. So even with the more noisy magnetic literature, the evidence is not there. So again, so the findings of this, this most recent study are not surprising. Interestingly, you know, I think I've just I'll discussed this before, so I'll just quickly summarize. A number of mechanisms have been proposed for how magnetic insoles or braces or bracelets or whatever can work, and none of them have really panned out, and most of them don't make any sense if you think about them even a little bit. So magnets do not increase blood flow. They do not attract the iron in your blood, which is <laughs> non-ferromagnetic to begin with. It doesn't reduce inflammation. It doesn't you know, increase oxygen delivery. It really doesn't have any f- measurable physiological effect. One thing that confuses a lot of people is that there are stu- some studies looking at dynamic magnets, right? And sh- like really powerful dynamic magnets actually have a measurable field at tissue depth showing some physiological response. And they say, see, that pro- that's a proof of principle. It actually isn't because most of these products are yeah. static magnets. And a static magnetic field shouldn't have any physiological effect, and, ha- and it really can't compare it to an alternating or a dynamic magnetic field. And also the, the strength of the static magnetic fields that are being used is very, very shallow. In other words, they, they drop off very, very quickly, so it doesn't get to tissue depth, you know? Also, you know, often it's brought up that if magnetic fields had such a powerful effect on biological function, then we would probably would notice something when we put people in a two Tesla magnet for an MRI scan, you know, but there really isn't any other than the images that we get, you know, there's really no physiological effect from from being in that massively powerful magnet. So forget about the tiny little refrigerator magnets that people are strapping to their knees or wrists or whatever. So bottom line, don't waste your money on copper or magnetic bracelets for pain or arthritis or whatever. 
Well, you could get the Q-Ray. <laughs> they have an entry model for fifty nine ninety five. You can get, or you can get their rose gold deluxe for two hundred bucks. Are they still allowed to sell that stuff? I thought they were shut down. Yeah, the FTC's already gone after them. I mean, they're re- they've actually had judges made against them for by the FTC for for yeah. fraud essentially or what false advertising. You know, when Perry was in the hospital one time, and I went to get him something at the gift shop before I went up and visited him, and sure enough, right there in the displays case display case magnetic bracelet good for what ills you <laughs> bought it for him <laughs> brought it up to him we both had a very good laugh over that one that's yeah it's crazy so i i was just poking around the q ray site trying to find some bs on there and apparently they must have taken it all off because of the trouble that they got in so mm-hmm. so i went to the uh the y q ray link and the the quick response was, uh, it says, why not? For almost 20 years, Q-Ray has been recognized as the world leader in wellness lifestyle bracelets. Wellness lifestyle, yes. Yeah, so they're selling a lifestyle, not an actual cure or anything. Yeah, that's just the way they get around the, the regulations. Evan, give us the quick skinny on the balloon boy. Yeah, so was anyone around on Friday when this was all? I mean, oh, yeah. Was, was, any, was anyone yeah, not I mean, glued? You had to be yeah, in a exactly. cave, was basically. Was anyone not glued? Yeah. It's either the television or radio or what have you. I mean, this thing dominated October 16th, uh, in which a, uh, supposedly a homemade balloon crafted by the Henny family of Colorado got loose from its tethers, and apparently inside the balloon was, they believed, their six-year-old son, Falcon, uh, who somehow got in there, and there it was, this balloon supposedly zipping away, <laughs> with uh, with a with a, a UFO, UFO shaped balloon. balloon exactly uh, with yeah. with a six year old boy you know inside so you know obviously everyone's you know the immediate concern obviously was for this for the child and that was the reason why this gained. that's what got that's the Jimmy's falling down a well exactly media exactly as you all know there was the boy was not in the balloon as it came down several hours later in a field and. There was nothing, nothing inside this in the balloon. But where was the balloon? Well, actually, it didn't the bottom had fallen? It was off a of box. The there was something attached to the bottom. Yeah, the but the box detached from yeah. the balloon. Although by the time they had the cameras and everything on it, apparently the box had already detached. So you, what you have is this, you know, balloon floating away. So this balloon chase ensued for three hours. No boy, in, no boy was to be found inside. Where was the boy? Well, it turns out the boy was home. He was uh, hiding in the attic. You know, he didn't. He didn't come. According to the father, Richard Henney, he didn't come out because he was afraid that he was, you know, going to get punished for for playing with the family balloon or something to that effect. Well, what it turned out is a little more investigation by police into the matter, and this was a hoax uh, designed by Richard and Mayumi Henney, who are no strangers to television. They have appeared before on a television show called Wife Swap, which is a reality-based television show. This fellow, Richard Henney, is. Big into UFO conspiracies, big into alien conspiracies. Yeah, so this is all a publicity stunt to try to you know help them get their own reality TV show. But I wonder if what happened was that the hoax went awry when the box detached from the balloon, so then they couldn't pretend that the kid was in there anymore, yeah. right? He would have fallen to his death if he were in there. So that kind of blew a hole in their in their story. Yeah, I also read though that he that somebody looked at the balloon and said that it never could have lifted the kid's weight anyway. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but most people watching it on the TV wouldn't know that. No, but or as the cameras were following this balloon, kind of you know going at a pretty good clip 
through the air. You can tell that thing is you know speeding by at a decent clip. Um, it, it seemed highly improbable that there was anything in that balloon. There was no bulge. There was no mm-hmm. you know sign of any of any kind of movement or an, or any object. A rock yeah. didn't matter, right? That there was there was there was no weight to it. And then they started to tell you about what the approximate dimensions of this balloon were and you know people started to figure it out as people I was listening to the radio for the most part as this was developing and they had people calling in saying there's no way anything is on that balloon it's too small it doesn't have enough you know it, it could it could maybe lift a, cu- a pound or two maybe at most the kid was 37 pounds I think interestingly I think you know the press of you know eventually and the certainly the investigators were uh, were pretty much on top of it you know, I don't really can't really fault the press for the way the story was reported. This fellow, Richard Henney, had a video up on YouTube. Actually, he had a series of videos up on YouTube, um, all about his beliefs about you know aliens, UFOs, life on Mars, a bunch of other things. They're all they've all been taken down now. <laughs> but at one point, and there was a link on the Drudge Report to it. It was. Uh, the, the title was fake or real Hillary Clinton is a reptilian are you guys familiar with the whole theory about you know how the reptilians have in yeah. alien and are alien invaders and they've infiltrated all the highest levels of government around the world and we're really all being governmentally from the government standpoint controlled by these aliens that are actually in control so he was and yeah. I actually got a, got a chance to gl- to glimpse at that I mean th- this guy is uh, really not all there. Yeah, that's I, you know I, I never watched that show Wife Swap, but I think it was on one one time or twice. I saw it, and that was one of the episodes I happened to see. It was disgusting because it, the that um, episode was sold as you know because they try to get like opposites yeah. Yeah. to swap wives and see what happens. That was sold as, like the true believers versus the scientist, and this guy was the scientist. Oh, I'm like, oh my goodness, yeah. this guy's a total crank. But to these morons, he's a scientist. I know, but Steve, you're watching, you're watching Wife Swap, you know? <laughs> well, still. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Well, Bob, you're going to give us a very quick update on the lunar plume that NASA didn't see when they crashed the lacrosse satellite into the, into the lunar surface. Yeah, finally, we got some, they got some good news for, uh, for the lacrosse mission that hurled, if you remember, it hurled an empty rocket stage into the moon looking for water. If you remember, everyone was hoping for dramatic images of a, of a plume of deb- debris or ejecta raising above the moon or rising above the moon. Uh, that plume seems uh, seemed to be a no-show, which was disappointing to many people who, uh, who got up early in the morning uh, to visit the site and, and look at the uh, big video screen that NASA put up. And I know lots of people – I even know somebody who, who has a decent-sized telescope, and she was up looking early uh, trying to see something, and they didn't see anything. So there a lot of people were very disappointed, even though uh, good science and the, and the discovery of water was still possible. Uh, it just didn't live up to the hype that NASA made of it. Uh, well, it seems now that the Shepard satellite that was monitoring the whole thing and actually plunged into the moon four minutes later um, after the main impact – did in fact detect a plume of deb- debris uh, rising above uh, the surface of the of the moon, but it was very it was very small as you might imagine. It wasn't the ten kilometer high plume that they had hoped. It was only uh, less than a mile or less than a kilometer or so. Um, and the reason I didn't I didn't know this previously as well. The reason why they think now that it might have been such a a small uh, plume was that was a combination of things. One was the hollow booster rocket. When when that, when something hollow hits something really hard, it it does less damage because it it crumples 
it crumples like a car, like modern cars do nowadays. So you had this booster rocket that kind of absorbed all the impact, and when it crumpled up, and and the actual surface of the moon was, they think that area was kind of spongy and energy absorbing as well. So that that's right. kind of like what they're going with now. Now people from the Earth, like the, the Hubble and and people on Earth, would not have seen this plume at all because it didn't it didn't rise above the rim of the crater. So that's why they they could never have seen it. So the bottom line is that they finally got the plume, which they w- were hoping for, and uh, and they're still doing good science. The science was never really terribly impacted by by any of this, and uh, they're saying now that hopefully yeah, that they'll have some good information by mid-November, and uh, hopefully they'll find some of the water. Awesome. Mm. So a bit of a PR fizzle, but the science still was successful. Yeah, exactly. Uh, one more quick item before we check in with Rebecca and Randy. This one's in honor of Halloween, which is coming up. Uh, next week will be really the Halloween episode, but just to, just to lead up to that. Uh, researchers have discovered the largest orb weaver spider ever. It's a spider. It lives in Africa and Madagascar. It is called Nafila Komachi, K-O-M-A-C-I, um, named after a colleague of the, of the discoverer uh, who had unfortunately died in an accident recently. The uh, person who discovered it is Matjez Kuntner. He's a biologist from Slovenian Academy of Sciences and Arts. And actually, he first found a specimen in 2000, but it was just an isolated specimen, and it was dead. It wasn't actually a living specimen. Uh, but then su- subsequently found several more representatives of the species, so they could say, yes, this is definitely a species. This spider is huge uh, Ish. The, for a spider. Yeah, for I mean, you know, if you saw this thing crawling around your kitchen, I think you would you would notice. So, how big is it, Steve? Um, it's not. It's actually not the biggest spider. It's just the biggest orb weaver spider. So, its body, just the body itself, is about one and a half inches. With the legs, the leg span is about four point seven mm. inches, and it weaves webs that are up to a meter or over three feet in diameter. Cool. Wow! Love to see that. So imagine yeah. that. That's enormous. Other thing that's really interesting is the the disparity in the size between the female and the male is also sexual dimorphism they call it. Yeah, it's it's, <laughs> it's, it's immense. It's actually <laughs> it's a case of female gigantism. Oh. So there we go. Biggest orb weaving spider. So for Halloween you gotta have a meteor wide fake spider's web as you, for decoration. That's a nasty looking arachnid. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a pretty one. No. Well let's go on and check in with Rebecca and then Randy. Now we're being joined by Rebecca Watson from Bangkok. Rebecca, how was it in Bangkok? It's awesome, except for that you guys aren't here. I know. But besides that, it's great. <laughs> that would be fun. When, when are we going to do live podcast of SGU here in Bangkok? I don't know. You gotta, while you're oh, wow. there, your job is to set that up. Do we have any <laughs> listeners in Bangkok? <laughs> I don't know. No one, no one contacted me and said that I should visit them. So either we do and they don't like me very much or we don't. Rebecca, I would figure that you would have uh, already started a you know Skeptics in the Pub Bangkok style going on down there. <laughs> Every night wherever I am is Skeptics in the Pub. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we've, we've been having Skeptics in the Pub Singapore and Malaysia and <laughs> Bangkok, Phuket. So Rebecca and I have a funny little story to tell you guys. Okay. Let me tell you really? let me tell you the story of me getting spammed from Rebecca's Skype account by some random girl named uh, Nana in Malaysia. 
so I, I noticed that Rebecca's on Skype and, uh, I said to her, I'm like, hey, you want a boat? Like, you know, last I heard you were on a boat, Rebecca, so I didn't know where the hell you were. And then Rebecca, quote, unquote, Rebecca says, hi. And I said, how are you? Where are you? And she goes, Malaysia. So I'm like, cool, how is it? And then from that moment <laughs> forward, the conversation clearly was not me with Rebecca. You just uh, sensed it wasn't Rebecca on the other it end. It wasn't like- Rebecca. It was not Rebecca. Uh, Psychic sense that it wasn't me. So I thought, I figured, okay, somebody hacked into her account so i start saying weird stuff so i said to the person i think i'm going to shoot myself good thing you skyped me <laughs> and and then the lady responds with nice where are you <laughs> oh so if i then i send out, out rebecca these crazy emails i'm like rebecca emergency emergency somebody hacked into your skype account and i call her up and everything so i finally get an email from rebecca and she says no no don't worry that was me. I, I was drunk. I was in a cyber cafe, and I accidentally left Skype on, and I left. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, it, it wasn't some mastermind Malaysian hacker. <laughs> just random people were going on yeah, your Skype just, account. and Yeah. <laughs> I changed the password, though, so yeah, it should good. be fine now. That's good. <laughs> Rebecca, you, you implied that you have had some encounters with the paranormal in Asia. It's true. Uh, we we spent a few days on this beautiful island called Langkawi, which is right off the coast of Malaysia. And um, on our way there, we, we met this really cool woman on a train, and she, uh, she was talking to us about the island and what we should see while we were there. And she told us the story of this, um, this woman who was uh, was put to death on the island years and years, like centuries ago. The woman apparently uh, became pregnant out of wedlock, and she was accused of adultery. Uh, but she claimed that she had become pregnant by some supernatural means, um, but they didn't believe her, and they put her to death for adultery. But when they put her to death, they were stabbing her with spears, as one might. And she bled white, which apparently showed that she was innocent, sadly too late. So she she died and cursed the island uh, to have seven centuries of um, terrible luck, apparently. But the seven centuries are up, so it's actually quite a booming little tourist island now. Um, and you can... Uh, you can go to see this woman's grave, and you can also see um, there's a lake called the Lake of the Pregnant Maiden. And supposedly that's where she got magically pregnant. And women who want to get pregnant are encouraged to go there and swim. I did not swim in the lake, um, yeah. so hopefully I will not get magic pregnant. All right, so they said that if she's innocent, she bleeds white, and she got immaculately conceived. (laughs) Impregnated. There's a a line of thought going on here, all right? That means they killed God. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Or she ate a lot of vanilla ice cream before they got to her. (laughs) That's sick. Uh, Yeah, it's it's an inch. I I thought it was a really interesting story um, on several levels. Like, I mean, one, the, the magical impregnation. Um, but the deeper story, I think, is that, you know, they, they used to put women to death for, for having 
children out of wedlock. Um, yeah. So who who wouldn't say that it was right? Of course, it was magical. You know, so you know you, you kind of can't blame her. The whole bleeding white thing. Who knows where where that part came from? It's almost kind of nice though that she became a heroic figure, uh, yeah. considering that it was a very anti woman <laughs> uh, law that put her to death. You know, maybe she wasn't lying. I mean, you know, she could have been saying, you know, it was magical. Like, maybe she really enjoyed it, you know? Well, Whoa. yeah. Um, <laughs> and not to bring it down too much, but also might have been raped. So, yeah, um, that's true. Who knows? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's who right. knows? It was 700 years ago, right? Yeah. Know. Yeah, really. It's hard to do the forensics on that right. so far afterwards. Um, but then also we went to uh, we went to see a waterfall on the island uh it's really pretty waterfall that's up in a rainforest and according to our guidebook uh fairies have been known to use that as their uh playground so we went and we we looked um but all we saw were dozens of adorable local children so maybe that those fairies they were very (laughs) cute um (laughs) i don't know about them being fairies though rebecca when are you coming home I will be back in London by uh, next Thursday, I guess, end of October. What's that? The 29th. Awesome. Um, yeah, so I'm not sure if I can be on the show next week. Uh, I might not be home in time. But definitely the week after that. After that, yes, definitely. You'll be home in time for Halloween, though. I will be back in time for Halloween. Bob, Halloween oh, is not big nice. in London. It's so sad. Wow, that, that would be a deal breaker. I wouldn't go. Um, oh, you know, speaking of, of British series, do you, do you guys like um, Red Dwarf? I'm aware uh, of its existence. Never, yes, I'm aware of its existence. I never got into it. Oh, I, well, I'm one of the uh, actors on Red Dwarf now has a, his name's Robert Lewis, and he has a, um, he's, he's on TV in, in England still, on, on different shows, and he has an internet show called um, carpool, where he drives around with people and, and talks to them, basically. And I, I guess I'm going to be on it, um, cool. in early November. So I'll, I'll let you guys know when it's up. It'll, it'll go online so everybody can see. Oh, but, awesome. Oh, wow. Well, that yeah. sounds awesome. Skeptics Guide should get a plug, of course. Well, Rebecca, we, we look forward to, uh, getting you back from your tour to spread skepticism throughout Asia. Uh, yeah, I look, I look forward to being home as much as, as much fun as I'm having, it'll be nice to be back in London. Enjoy the rest of your trip, Rebecca. Thank you. Nice talking to you guys. Bye, Bye Rebecca. Bye. Bye. Joining us now is James Randy. Randy, welcome back to the Skeptics Guide. It's good to be here, Steve. And James Randi is one of the few people in the skeptical movement that truly requires no introduction. I think everyone knows quite well who you are, but we'll we'll give the the quick overview. Uh, James Randi, of course, is a magician and skeptic and promoter of science and reason. Uh, He is the chairman of the board of the James Randi Educational Foundation, the author of numerous books, uh, an inveterate skeptic, the um, founder of, of course, the JRF and the Amazing Meeting, which has evolved into the annual meeting of the skeptical movement, in my opinion. And it's always a pleasure to have you on our show. So again, welcome back. I'm blushing here. You can't see it, but I'm <laughs> blushing. <laughs> Remember, maybe you can see. Maybe you can see. I, see that. See, I never say anything is impossible. Yeah, I say yeah. I want proof. That's all. So there. <laughs> 
So, Randy, the, uh, the, I think the question that everyone has first off is how are you doing health-wise? Well, I'll uh, give you an immediate report, an on-scene report. I'm sitting here with a bottle in my pocket under pressure, which is feeding some chemotherapy into a little port on my chest. It's a lot of fun. You know, I, I feel like the bionic man, but without the $6 million price tag. But I'm, I'm doing very well with it. I'm, I'm uh, taking chemotherapy at... I've just had my seventh dose of 12 that are scheduled, and so I'll be finished the first week of uh, January. So I'm, I'm doing very well. I, I have no complaints at all. I'm taking the right medications, and I'm taking care of myself and drinking lots of fluids. Oh, gurgle, gurgle. The, the, the nausea and such that might accompany this are just absent. I don't know whether I, it's my pure soul or what it is, but whatever it is, or maybe I'm just so nasty that the, the poison is afraid to offend me. I'm not so sure. Professional courtesy? Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Very good. Well, that's great. And the prognosis, I understand, is good. Oh, yeah. The prognosis is good. And uh, I had the operation, you know. Uh, it was colon cancer. And they took out a few inches of my colon. But I've been digesting stuff just the way I always have. Because there's yards and yards of it in there. So I can spare it, I'm sure. But uh, they removed that. And then they gave me the chemo to clear up lymph glands and a few things like that. I decided to cancel my lymph glands altogether. <laughs> Don't know how to go about it, but so you're availing yourself of the best of science-based medicine. Absolutely, and uh, no beating on drums or prayers or chanting or homeopathic medicine. No, I've I've managed to escape that. I I decided at the last minute. No, I'll go the the old-fashioned way. It's called science. Right. No, no mag, no magnets or copper bracelets. Oh no, no <laughs> copper bracelets, no magnets. Can I ask you? Has anyone, any anyone from the other side, tried to taunt you or offer you any alternative medicine or unscientific uh, treatments? Or they no, know, they, they know they better. Oh, no, so far they haven't. But Sylvia Brown, I understand, is now claiming that she predicted this. Is that right? Yes, indeed. No, it's not right that she did, but it's right that she's claiming it. <laughs> That's right that she claims it, yeah. But we don't have that in any writing or anything documented. No, I, uh, somebody doubtless after hearing this will send me, send me a raft of things where she says exactly that. <laughs> right. She, at some point she said, Randy will get sick at some point in the future. Yes. Which is, you know. What are the odds? Yeah, it's a pretty safe yeah, prediction about anybody. Yeah. I, I had a funny, a funny thing happen, Steve. I'm going to share this with you. Jim Mosley is a, an ex-friend of mine who lives in uh, in Florida here, and he publishes a thing called Saucer Smear, which is all about UFOs, and you probably wouldn't have heard of it, but it's a hand-type thing that he mails out every now and then. He hasn't discovered computers, I guess. And uh, he, he said out there that, that I was on death's door, the whole thing, I was confined to a wheelchair. Steve, I've only been in a wheelchair once in my life, and that was at at Tam Las Vegas, this last one, and I was in there just for two days because there were long hauls to transverse, and I had to do it in a hurry, and Brandon, my chief assistant here, was, is very quick on his feet, and he got me from hall to hall. I, it's the only time I've ever used a wheelchair, and Jim Mosey says that I'm confined to a wheelchair, and he also said, you know, at 81, Randy hasn't got long to live. Uh, duh. <laughs> you know, like, come on, let's just get real here. Uh, Jim himself is 78, right. so he I guess he thinks he's got forever to live, but hey, wh what can I do? You can't talk sense to these people. Yeah, actually, I, I read his book, Confessions of a Grave Robber or something, I think it is. Yes, yeah. yes, indeed. It was, it was oh, entertaining, oh. although he, he, interesting kind of guy. I mean, he says that... Yeah, oh, yes. he, he robbed graves <laughs> in back down in South America, <laughs> and so so he was a ghoul. Well, he for, for yeah, not for bodies, but for artifacts. No, for, he was a waquero. 
That's what they, that's what they call people who run in, in Spanish in Peru. That's the terminology they use, huacero. And, uh, I, he didn't mention my name, I suppose, in the book. Not that I recall. It's been a number of years since I read it. Well, you, you, I think you would recall because, uh, I actually accompanied him on one of his forays in Peru. I found it very interesting. And I came back with a couple of small pocket pieces. Very tiny little figurines. It's all over the desert. It's strewn all over the, the mm-hmm. Atacama Desert there, which is the uh, longest desert in the world, by the way. And, uh, yes, it's strewn all over the place. It's it's quite an adventure, quite an adventure, because you can find skulls and things that the wind uh, just uncovers. Cool. And- oh, Bob's on his way now. <laughs> he's, he's getting a ticket as we speak. I see. Okay. Uh, Randy, you said he, he was your ex-friend, so like you were chums at the time, well, but no, you were falling he, out? Yeah, he fell out with me somehow, and I don't know what it was all about. I I can't recall now, but uh, uh, somehow he was saying that I was denying the existence of UFOs, which I've never done. I've just said I'm denying the evidence of, of UFOs. I'm very careful about those statements. But uh, he eventually changed his mind, did Jim? And he, he decided that it was all a crock, and he used another expression, actually, and that uh, he just sort of went along with it because it was sort of fun to follow the cuckoos, and uh, the cuckoos have been dying at an alarming rate, uh, and uh, I guess we're the only two that are left. I'm not sure. Yeah, that was kind of the impression I got from his book, is that he was being kind of coy, not really saying if he believes or doesn't believe, but it was all kind of fun. So I guess subsequently he's he's been more emphatically saying, yeah, there's no evidence for UFOs. I mean, is he, is he taking that position now? Yeah, more or less. It, it's hard to tell with Jim. He's, uh, so, Randy, I, I know that you've been working on your latest book, A Magician in the Laboratory. How's that going? Very well, very well. The The problem, Steve, is that, uh, and, and gentlemen, I should say, the problem is that I've got so much material. And uh, I've got 32 chapters so far uh, that, that are not all written, uh, but I've got the material assembled for them. And, uh, you know, the, the computer is a, is a blessing this way, if I can use that term loosely. I don't know how I'd do it without it. The other books I did with paste-ups, you know, I would mm-hmm. type out entire pages and then cut them up with scissors and glue them together huh. and then photocopy them and send them off. It must have been a pain. Now, anyway, yes, it's uh, it's far from completion. It's going to be probably two-thirds of the way through next year before I actually have it in shape to send to a publisher. Mm-hmm. I won't have any problem getting a publisher because once you have a few successful books that have, yeah. have some, some copies... Uh, uh, can you give us a, uh, any anecdotes from the book? Uh, give us a taste of what it's going to be about? Uh, I've got, well, as I say, 32 chapters. One of the very big ones is going to be on uh, the Benveniste affair, which is homeopathy, of course. That uh, He's the only person, Jacques Benveniste in France, who supported the whole homeopathy picture. And he uh, is the only man in history to win two Ig Nobel Prizes. Uh, yes. And that's 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 a distinction. You you can't beat that. It's oh, wow. quite an honor. Yeah, you've got to be really <laughs> stupid to get that. But uh, he is now deceased and also dead. And uh, unfortunately, oh. uh, an, an accident during a, a brain operation. As a matter of fact, I don't know what was happening to him. But uh, you know, I, I was never enemies with him. Uh, he wrote me up very badly on a couple of sites there and uh, accused me of all kinds of dreadful things. Uh, that is. Uh, in the in the uh, academic direction, but then I I got out on the excuse that I'm not an a- academic. I only have a degree from the University of Indianapolis in humane letters, and I don't even know what the letters are. It'd be only H or E. I'm not sure. But uh, I one of these days I may find out. 
I thought he died from a homeopathic overdose. No, that means you have to stop taking it altogether because the deeper the dilution of the thing, like 10 <laughs> to the 30th or 10 to the 60th, which is well over Avogadro's limit, the more powerful the medicine is. So he forgot to take it one day and died. Or, Bob, did you mean that he fell in a swimming pool, you know, and couldn't get out? <laughs> yeah, right. That way. Yeah, that's true, true. Any glass of water is going to have all the homeopathic charm that all of it has. Home, you know, I wish that homeopathy died with Jacques Benveniste, but it hasn't. I mean, now, oh. yeah, it, it's it, that's one of the ones that amazes me that it still is chugging along. Yeah. And now, um, I don't know if you've been following some of the blogs, we've been talking about um, the fact that the Huffington Post has now hired Dana Ullman as a oh, regular my. blogger, and he is an apologist for homeopathy. He's just oh, embarrassing. Yes. I don't know if you've ever crossed well, he, social no, him. He's an embarrassing human being, let alone an yeah. advocate of, of homeopathy. No, he's, he's just, uh, it's at the point I think he's just stupid. Mm-hmm. I think I, I have to give him the benefit of the doubt and call him stupid. Uh, I don't think he's a nefarious person or anything like that. But he, he, his whole profession is based on homeopathy, so he has to defend it. Uh, and that gives him a good motive to, to promote it, of course. But I think he's just basically a stupid man. Yeah, I mean, you know, I th- in in the way that creationists say are in that they have a yeah. they're in an impossible position. They they have to defend yeah. something which is wrong. Yeah, and, and it's amazing the mental gymnastics Dana Ullman goes through, um, mm-hmm. cherry picking data and oh, yeah. making ridiculous correlations between things. It, it really is just astounding. Yeah, and the, the point is that he can ignore all the negative stuff by choosing carefully, as you say, cherry picking. Of course. But to him, I think he thinks it's okay. Yeah. Because, the, because basically the phenomenon is, phenomenon is there, you see. That's his belief. I think he really honestly believes that it works and that it exists as a, as a, uh, as a chemical phenomenon or I don't know how you could describe it really. Yeah. The, yeah. The, he's pushing the water memory thing now and he will link to evidence that has absolutely nothing to do with homeopathy and doesn't support it and say, you see, there's something funny going on with water. That means homeopathy can work. That, I mean, that sounds like Rumston Roy, right? Oh, yeah. that's Yeah, he and Rumston Roy are buddies. I mean, that's absolutely. Again, Roy has been promoting this water memory thing, which is mm-hmm. is really absurd, right? Because it's... They're, yeah, yeah. They're pointing to these very transient effects, and yeah. and which does not in any way rescue homeopathy from being pure vitalistic magic. Well, you know, on Swift, uh, you wanted something that's going to uh, come out of a new book, A Magician in the Laboratory. I can give you a, a good sample of something, I think. Okay. <clears throat> I have been fighting the NIH now, tooth and nail, because I belong to the Gilda's Group. You know what Gilda's Group is all about? Gilda's no. Place, pardon me, I should say. It's uh, named yeah. after Gilda Radner, who yeah. left oh, uh, sure. yeah. a sizable fortune uh, to open uh, branches all over the country. And people with uh, with cancer problems go there, recovering or in the middle of it or whatever. They go there for advice and camaraderie. And I, I uh, it's just down the street from me here, not more than 200 yards. And so I walk down and uh, I spend a lot of my time there in the evening just sitting and holding people's hands and, and cheering them up because they're feeling very sorry for themselves, and rightly so. They have a right to it, I guess. One of the things that I'm writing about in uh, Magician in the Laboratory is the fact that acupuncture is being promoted, tacitly promoted, I add that very carefully, please, uh, by the NIH, the National Institutes of Health. Now, that's $120 billion a year or something. They're, they're, they're funding. It's, it's just incredible. 
and it's paid for by taxpayers and, and also some generous donors out there, of course. Now, they have 520 references to experiments to examine whether acupuncture works on their webpage, on the NIH webpage. You can go to it, see 520 of them. Now, I have a fellow in England who has gone through the first 240 or so, so far, doing an analysis of them as to whether or not they're valid. A lot of them are in Chinese, so we can't read them at all, so we just count those out. But we've got certain classifications. Eight of them, eight out of the ones that he's examined already, as I say, something like 240, 280, whatever it is, eight of them are positive, but none of the eight were done double blind. Mm -hmm. And in most of them, they mention, no, it's not necessary. Uh, when, you're, when you're testing acupuncture to do the no, it's the most necessary thing. No experiment is valid unless it's double blind. If, if it if it can be double blinded, uh, so it's just not valid. And so none of the eight of the winners, and most of them are incomplete. They don't. They, they just have the abstract. They don't have the entire paper, and the entire paper runs on forever and ever over the hill, as you can imagine. When you when and if you can find it. So so far. They're not doing too well in the stuff they've offered. Now, I know what the NIH did, I'm sure. They just said to some student, they said, go into Google and go into Yahoo and pick up everything you can on experiments that have been done to examine the efficacy of uh, acupuncture. And they've done that, and they've just listed all of them as, as if they were positive. And you go through them, and it's negative, 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 or the usual thing, they only had 40 subjects. or something. And you can't get a database on 40 subjects of something like this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and this is, I think, because the NIH has now the National Center for Complementary Alternative Medicine as as one yes. of its centers, which was sort of forced down their throats by the Senate. But, you know, I think Harkin was mainly behind that. And so now there's basically a, a, a foothold of complementary alternative medicine proponents who are using the prestige of the NIH to promote treatments which don't work. Like yeah. acupuncture, and then they're and they're using this, you know, in, in my opinion, very deceptive mechanisms to try to make it seem as if it's legitimate. But as you say, I mean, you're, you're, what what your uh, colleague is doing is replicating what has already been done with specific questions. There have been systematic reviews of acupuncture yes. evidence for specific yeah. indications, and yes. and they're all negative. Whenever you yeah. take, all right, what's all the evidence for acupuncture and back pain? You look at all the evidence. You look at the quality of the studies, which ones are positive, which ones were negative. They're negative. The, the, yes. Overall, the evidence is – right. if, if, if there weren't a political agenda, agenda behind yep. it, yep. if this were just some yep. order, so another in a, a regular medical modality, it would have been discarded a long time ago. Well, you'll get a big kick out of this. I did write uh, an email to the NIH asking them, uh, what is your view on the use of acupuncture for treatment of cancer and for the side effects of chemotherapy that I'm currently undergoing? Because even the local uh, clinic here told me, did you think of trying acupuncture? And I blew up and gave oh. them the, the complete lecture. And believe me, in, in high dudgeon, and uh, <laughs> I get in high dudgeon, that's much different from my low dudgeon, uh, very much. Did you say, do you know who I am? <laughs> <laughs> you look at me. Examination of those 520 papers is proving very, very interesting because I got my first hints by examining all the NIH uh, pamphlets that I could find, and Gilda's place has lots of them on the on the rack, as you can as you can imagine. The usual mention is something like, "You may wish to speak to your physician concerning the use of acupuncture for relief of these side effects." 
Mm-hmm. Now that that is saying nothing. It's a tacit approval. Right. So the fact is yep. that it is an approval because people read these leaflets and they see NIH approves it. Right. And all all of the acupuncturists. I went in for an MRI the other day, uh, Steve, mm-hmm. because I had a problem with the right arm and everything, and they wanted to know if it was neurological or whatever. Anyway, then I saw the place was littered with acupuncture brochures. The guy who runs the machine. This is a technician now, is also a doctor of acupuncture, mm-hmm. and doctor. he advertises his wares on there, and he publishes in those leaflets 59 diseases that acupuncture is used to treat, so he says, and he uses the mention at the top, approved by the NIH. Of course. And of course, I sent them copies of these things and saying, is this claim correct or not? Now, they won't answer me. The, the answer I did get when I sent an email uh, to the NIH, back in the, and I, I sat here and I roared with laughter and everyone wondered what was wrong with the old guy in the office there. It yeah. said that they have examined the needles that are used yeah. for the typical acupuncture treatment and they are sharp and stainless steel, and they can be sterilized, and they are discardable. Now, that's exactly like saying to a, to a guy who says, goes to NASA wow. and says, I want to go up on the shuttle and repair the toilet they've been having problems with. Oh, are you a plumber? Of course I'm a plumber. Look, I have a Stilson wrench. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And, and Stilson wrench are the best <laughs> in trade, you see. So naturally, I, what, what else do you need to know? <laughs> they use sharp needles. That's what the NIH was saying. They use sharp needles. That's the proof. Well, that, wow, that, yeah, I run into that a lot because yeah, the wow. FDA approves the needles as being yeah, acceptable exactly. medical devices. Yeah. That's not the same thing as approving the use of any of those needles. That's or, right. That's right. Or, and or the, effect, the possible effect of them. It says nothing to that effect at all. Yes, but people will advertise FDA approved, but they're really just talking about in some very narrow sense that has nothing to do with the actual clinical claims that are being made. It's like when you see on, on electrical devices and hardware, so URL or whatever it is, approved. Uh, Underwriting is laboratory, approved. It's approved for use, but it doesn't mean that it does what it does. Mm-hmm. It's just that it's safe. You can use this thing yeah. without, without dying. Yeah. But you could see how savvy they've become in finding every possible way of trying to surround themselves with the trappings of legitimacy without ever having actually earned it through evidence. Very true. Now, Susan Summers, of course, made an announcement just the other day when I was in the midst of the the chemo uh, uh, infusion. I I turned on the television, and she was there on... Oprah Winfrey was it? I think it was Oprah I think Winfrey. So, yeah. yeah, and she was saying the chemotherapy has been proven to be total nonsense. So I, I yanked the needle out of my arm, of course, because <laughs> you know what kind of an authority she is. She's an actress, and of course, <laughs> yeah. she knows everything. Her medical training is profound. Oh, Suzanne Summers, man, don't get me started on her. So she recently <laughs> said that um, Patrick Swayze, you know, who who, who died yeah, yeah, recently, yeah, that yeah. she said he died because of the chemotherapy. That's right. That, That's exactly yeah, right. that she had to apologize for and of it. Of course, Oprah just fawns over her yeah. like crazy. Oprah is one of the most dangerous women in history, let alone yeah. in this generation. Thank you. Yes, I we've agree, been saying yeah. that for quite some time now. Absolutely, because absolutely. she cre- gives the platform for every crank and charlatan that's out there. She's the, yeah. Oh, and, absolutely. And, she's the loudspeaker. She's the amplifier. No doubt. She takes something that's terrible and makes it a hundred times worse. It makes it apparently acceptable to a lot of little ladies who are sitting there in their rocking chairs and watching, and they'll go out and buy the book. 
Yeah, she's basically our nemesis, I think, Oprah Winfrey. So, Randy, I like asking um, those people who have been in the skeptical movement longer than I have, uh, how you think we are doing on the whole. You have a perspective that that obviously is more far-reaching than ours. So how how do you think we're doing? I think we're doing okay, Steve. Uh, The feedback I get is very satisfactory. I get the the, the cuckoo stuff, woo-woo, pardon me, the woo-woo stuff. I'm promoting that word, woo-woo. I want to get that into Webster's, and if we use it enough and it spreads around, it's going to be in my new book on almost every page, I'm sure. Uh, anyway, no, I think we're doing well because I get a lot of mail from people who are congratulating me on what I'm doing and uh, and letters that read like like this kind of thing. You know, when I first heard of you, Mr. Randy, I was very opposed to you. Then I looked at one of your books in the library, or I bought the book, which is much more satisfactory, mm-hmm. and uh, I found out that you were right. I had a lawyer friend, I don't know whether I ever told you this story, a lawyer, a fellow walked in the door uh, unannounced with a briefcase in his hand. He was on his way uh, to to hear a case a couple of blocks down in the courthouse. And he, he happened by and uh, he came in and we greeted him and he wanted to have a word with me. And he opened up his briefcase and took out a tattered, really tattered copy of Flim Flam. I love to see those artifacts. And uh, it had yellow slips all the way on all, all three openings on the book. He said, uh, this is my, my, my copy of Flim Flam, which I started to examine. He said, but note something, if you will, and he handed it to me, and I saw that it was only two-thirds of the way full of yellow slips. He said, yes, I stopped two-thirds of the way through because I was wasting yellow slips. I, I looked in the mirror and I said, damn, the man's right. <laughs> he said, I hated you. I hated you because you were, you were destroying some of my favorite uh, ideas on this sort of thing, see? And, but he said, I got to that point and I gave up and he said, uh, I'm here to buy another copy of Flim Flam. (laughs) (laughs) If you make a difference, if it turns people around in their tracks and makes them think, I don't ask them to believe what I say. I always say, don't believe me saying it, you know, examine what I'm saying and find out for yourself whether you consider it to be more reasonable than a previous attitude. And he apparently did that, and he was very happy with the results. And when they announced it to you, like, damn, I mean, my chest really hung out there. You know, it was, it was something to see me. I was unbearable for two days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but by the way, I, I did a quick search, and woo-woo is in the Urban Dictionary. Oh, really? But it, woo it, hyphen woo? Woo hyphen woo. Oh, really? Descriptive of an event or person espousing New Age theories such as energy work, crystal magic, Reiki, oh, et cetera, wonderful. et cetera. Uh, or a gullible person is the second uh, definition. However, it's not in the Webster's online dictionary. Mm-hmm. So you made the Urban Dictionary, but not yet Webster's Dictionary. Well, I'm aiming for Webster's. I always <laughs> like Noah. He's a nice old fellow. But uh, hey. getting back to what you were saying, I mean, I agree. I mean, I think we, we get those emails as well. I think that uh, on we certainly can have an impact on the individual level. Yeah, yeah um, exactly. But what do you think – how do you think we're doing in sort of broader culture, the perception of skeptics within culture, our penetration, our effect on the media? Do you, do, you feel that, do you feel it's different than it was, say, 20 years ago? I don't think we're having much effect on the media, unfortunately, because the media is not interested in truth. They're interested in effect. And if something comes out where homeopathy is same some young girl's life, they'll publish that. And the criticism they'll, – they'll call me for, for a comment on the thing. And I know damn well they're going to change it or they're not going to use it at all. I agree. We, we've encountered that too. You have the, the 
uh, reporters or the the media outlets that write the story first and then backfill the investigation just to fill in yeah. the needed details. But they've already they already know what the story is. They, they're not actually doing any investigation. And you know what happens? And they'll say something like, "Wait a minute, we need uh, an opposing view in here." Yeah, because it's it's got to be fair. But that's not fair at all when they hardly use it or they change it so much. Well, it's token. Yeah, just token skepticism. Yes, indeed. But yes. at the same time, like there was just a, a in Wired magazine, which is actually a pretty well-circulated online magazine. They just it ran a, a cover story on autism and vaccines that was hard-nosed skeptical. It really was a great article. It was excellent. It was great. So, and I, I, you know, I think we're, we're penetrating, you know, here, well, yeah, here no, and there. Yeah, we're, we're getting there, Steve. We are getting there. Uh, aside from the personal mail that I get and such, I meet people in the street. I meet people in restaurants and in in taxi cabs when I share sometimes from the air, from the airport and on planes all the time. And the one who recognizes me will usually come over and say something. Of course, I don't know what the people who who, who, who snarl at me as they pass by. I don't hear snarls very well. Uh, so maybe just as many people pass by me who hate my guts. But yeah, we're getting there. We're we're making an impression. And if we keep the latest amazing meetings that we've had in London and in, in Las Vegas, you know, a thousand and seven people in Las Vegas. And I'm very buoyed by that, uh, I must say. Well, Randy, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. I'm glad to hear that you're doing so well. Well, I'm, I'm happy to hear from you, Steve. Always happy to hear from you, of course. And or to see you as I occasionally do. It's our paths do cross in the skeptical world. And I assure all, all of your listeners that uh, I am doing very well with the chemo. Uh, it's not bothering me at all. Well, making me extremely weak, and I do a lot of napping. But at eighty-one, I do a lot of napping anyway. But we, honestly, we're all amazed at how uh, active and spry you are, even through all of this. So you're an inspiration, and that's why they call me yeah, <laughs> Randy. <laughs> well, thanks again, Randy. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Randy. Thank you. Bye bye. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious, and then I challenge my skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Are you all ready for this week? Yes. Red October standing by. This is a bye week for Rebecca. Here we go. Item number one. New research finds that diabetes is a major risk factor for developing schizophrenia, which may result from the effects of insulin on the brain. Item number two, researchers found the testosterone levels of men who voted for John McCain or Robert Barr in the 2009 presidential election dropped significantly after hearing the results of the election. Item number three, geologists have identified an alternate candidate crater for the KT extinction event off the coast of India, and if confirmed, would have resulted from a meteor four times as large as the one that caused the Yucatan crater. Evan, go first. A major risk factor for developing schizophrenia that diabetes is, uh, resulting from the effects of insulin on the brain. I don't know. Major risk factor? I thought the major risk factor of developing schizophrenia was genetics. The genes you are passed along. I don't know about that one. Um, and then researchers found testosterone levels of men who voted for McCain and Barr drop significantly after hearing the results. I guess so. I mean, there's nothing implausible about that. They must have had a just these people volunteered for that specific study. It's an interesting study in a way. And incidentally, for those who don't recall, John McCain and Robert Barr lost that election. No? What? They? Ugh. I demand a recount. <laughs> 
you know, did they also have, you know, the peop- the men who voted for Obama on that? I'm curious. It's interesting. I think that one is science. And now this one, an alternate candidate crater for the KT extinction off the coast of India. Sure. Yeah. Why not? I mean, because you can identify a candidate, you know, and maybe it was four times. It would have been four times larger. That doesn't mean it was it. You know, they still have to confirm it, like you said. So that one seems plausible to me. Uh, I don't know about this major risk factor that you're describing about insulin on the brain. For it's developing schizophrenia. That one doesn't sit right with me. So I'll say that one is fiction. Okay, Bob. Let's see another alternate candidate for KT. Wow, that's pretty interesting that they would find another potential crater that could have caused a dinosaur extinction 65 million years ago. Four times as large, that would be... A huge, huge meteor over 20 miles. Wow. <laughs> wow, what an event that would be. Um, the testosterone dropping for supporters of McCain. Yeah, I, I can kind of see that. You get really bummed by something like that. I could see how it would have an effect on testosterone. But significantly dropped? I don't, I don't know. And then uh, the diabetes one, major risk factor. for. I would have thought that would have been uh, – discovered a, quite a while ago if that was if that were the case not something that would just it just seems odd that they would would only notice that now uh insulin on the brain which, eh, what, no that doesn't sound right to me i'm going to say that one is fiction okay jay steve do you know what the diameter of the yucatan crater is because uh, i'm trying to figure out like if this thing in india was four times the size then i actually think that that would be too big that's something that that size would have would have actually done a lot more damage, would have done too much damage. You know, if if something you know big enough hits the Earth, it could crack the uh, it could crack the actual mantle, and that's uh, that's a de- uh, deal killer. I don't know. So I, I just don't know enough about how big this uh, what this proposed um, hit was. I don't know. I don't know about that one. I don't know. Researchers found the uh, testosterone levels dropped after. People found out that John McCain or Robert Barr lost. That's that's pretty interesting. I mean, I guess I guess that's plausible. I mean, I don't know what. I, I, it's interesting to think that your emotion could affect your testosterone level dramatically or, or quickly. But that's I, I suppose that's plausible. Um, and new new research finds that diabetes could be linked to schizophrenia. That's another one of those things. I'm sure it's plausible. So when you're a diabetic, you you don't process insulin properly, right? You're resistant to insulin. Type 2 diabetes, yeah. So that would mean that you have too much insulin? Yeah. Yeah, type 1 type one diabetes, uh, you don't make insulin because something has wiped out the cells in your pancreas that makes the insulin. Type 2 diabetes, you make too much insulin because you're resistant to the insulin. The insulin doesn't have as much of an effect as it's supposed to have. Okay, so this is going under type 2 diabetes, yeah, which means yes, that... Right. that two, too much insulin could have uh, an effect on your brain. That's really interesting. I bet you, uh, I don't know, I think that one is definitely science. I don't know about the uh, the, the testosterone one. That's, I don't know. It's, I'm sure it's possible. I just don't, I don't know enough about it, but it just, something about that one seems kind of strange to me. But I, I just don't think that this, this whole thing with the KT extinction, something four times as large as a Yucatan crater, I think that one is the fake. Okay. Well, we'll start in the middle then. You all agree that researchers found the testosterone levels of men who voted for John McCain or Robert Barr in the 2009 presidential election dropped significantly after hearing the results of the election. 
And that one is science. Not surprising. They did compare it to those who voted for Obama, whose levels um, fell only a little bit, mainly because it was in the evening and, you know, levels tend to fall later in the day anyway. So uh, the levels for the Obama voters Hmm. fell just slightly, as you would predict, just from the time of day. But the um, McCain and Barr supporters dropped significantly by about 25%. So what? Why did that happen? Well, the, the thinking is that you know testosterone obviously is a hormone of aggression in men. This is actually, as I said, only in males, and it's tied to contests. So the, the similar findings have been found for you know men after losing a losing a competition, or if we lose a, a competition through a proxy, right? So if your team loses, you know you have the same kind of reduction in in testosterone. So this extrapolates even to something, a team kind of a contest, even into politics, like who you support for president. I find this curious because it it makes me think that, you know, maybe we evolved this to kind of be more subservient when we've been bested or when we've been dominated. Exactly. That is the standard interpretation, that... Hmm. It's a dominance competition kind of thing, and when you lose, it kind of puts you into a more subservient mood. It's easy to see what the advantage would be, that if you've been bested in a competition, but you, you're still st- hopped up on testosterone, you know, you then may provoke the enemy that has clearly bested you. So it's probably a, a survival advantage to calm down at that point and to shift more into a subservient way of behaving. Ah. Right. But it's just interesting that this, right. that this extrapolates even to political fights, right? Hmm. Let's go on to the third one. Geologists have identified an alternate candidate crater for the KT extinction event off the coast of India, and if confirmed, would have resulted from a meteor four times as large as the one that caused the Yucatan crater. Jay, you think this one's a fiction. Bob and Evan, you think this one is science. And this one is science. Science. Sorry, Jay. Yeah, science. Yeah, I found this a little surprising. You know, this is... claiming this is a pretty darn big crater. This is um, the Shiva crater. Its outer rim forms a rough faulted ring some 500 kilometers in diameter. They estimate that if this is confirmed as a meteor crater, that the, the bolide that struck would have been about 40 kilometers or 25 miles in diameter wow. um, compared to the Yucatan strike, which was... Uh, eight and eight to ten kilometers, or five to six point two miles wide. So yeah, this would be about four times bigger. And they've dated it to approximately the same time, though. I mean, yeah. Well, they still need to uh, in, to confirm that they 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 think that it would date to the to the KT boundary, but they the researchers need to do on some on-site investigation and confirm that there's shocked quartz in the basin, that there's an iridium anomaly, that it has the features, in other words, of, of an actual meteor strike and not something else that happened, like a supervolcano or something or whatever. They said this would have cracked the crust, would, it would have had its own tectonics, basically, uh, would have resulted in you know secondary volcanic-type eruptions. This this was a cataclysmic event. So whenever it, if it is a strike, whenever it happened, whenever it happened, yeah, caused some badness. But wasn't wouldn't it be too big? I mean, we'll see. I mean, it has to be more thoroughly analyzed. It wouldn't necessarily be you know de facto too big an impact. It would have been again cataclysmic. You know, the kind of thing that would cause a mass extinction. 
but not necessarily like wipe out all life on Earth kind of thing. So what I, what I find, I mean, if this is if this really is an impact crater, what I find interesting is that you know, then what about the Yucatan one? You know, if it'd be interesting to see what the date is. What if these? What if this dates to the KT just like the Yucatan strike? I mean, what does that mean? One of them's wrong. There were two strikes. This is a meteor that broke apart and hit in two places. I don't know. What does that mean? Or was it uh, part of some sort of asteroid storm where the two? Maybe. Imagine two two hitting within yeah. you know within centuries of each other or even closer. But if you recall, there's been you know we've analyzed the uh, the fossil strata from around the world, and it really right. does seem to zero in like a bullseye on the Yucatan strike. So I don't yeah. honestly I don't buy this. Yeah, I think it's either not a meteor strike or it dates to some other time. I'd be very surprised if the, yeah. if the Yucatan strike data turns out not to be true because that seems pretty solid to me. Yeah, I my guess is that it's going to be another another, another time. time. Yeah, because um, yeah. I think because because the shape of the crater is is pretty classic. I mean, I don't think there's. It's much easier, I think, to make a mistake on the timing at this yeah. stage of the game than the actual shape of it. Because man, it sure sure looks like a crater. Right, right. So we'll see. Uh, all of this means that new research finds that diabetes is a major risk factor for developing schizophrenia, which may result from the effects of insulin on the brain, is complete fiction. It's nothing to do with diabetes. Completely. Nothing to do with insulin. So just wipe that from your memory. Uh, however, I did get this from a <laughs> real <Good luck. laughs> news item. <laughs> They linking risk for the development of schizophrenia to the treatment with certain anti-epileptic drugs. Now, this is an animal study uh, looking at the effect of certain anti-epileptic drugs on critical, given you know during critical periods of brain development, on an animal model that increases schizophrenia-like behaviors. So, you know, mental illness is always hard to model in an animal, right? Because they don't they just don't have the behaviors that humans do. So this is, you know, for, you know schizophrenia-like behaviors in an animal, eh, it's, it's something, but it, it's not, it's hard to know what that really means. But this is concerning, and this definitely needs follow-up research. So drugs like phenobarbital and other drugs that are used to treat seizures, we know these are heavy-duty, you know, brain-altering drugs. I mean, they, they, they have an effect on neurotransmitters and brain cell function. That's how they work. They are used to prevent seizures from occurring, and seizures have negative effects as well. So you know, there's always a risk versus benefit. And there's been concerns for a long time with giving these drugs to children, especially during you know, periods of brain development, because the, the, the concern is that it would inhibit neuronal function and, and brain development and may adversely affect the IQ of children who are treated for seizures with these drugs. And you know, if this pans out, and I think you know we, we would need to follow up with some epidemiological studies and see if there's a higher incidence of schizophrenia or other mental illnesses in people who were treated with certain drugs at certain ages. You know that would then have to be added to the risk end of the of the equation. Uh, still, you know it's it's hard to know what to do if you have a three year old who's seizing every day. You got to do something, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean the risk of not treating is huge uh, in, in situations like that you think that's not good for brain development either. So good job, Bob and Evan. Thanks, Doc. Mm-hmm. Evan, tell us about last week's Who's That Noisy? Yeah, last week's Who's That Noisy? I guess I should pull that up and have a look. Let us... Take a moment and replay the fascinating noise that was last week's Who's That Noisy? 
So what was that noisy oven? That was an emperor penguin. Yeah. Yeah. You can no. believe that. And a lot of people actually got that. Yeah, I reckon. If you wa- if you saw the movie March of the Penguins, you probably would recognize that. I saw the movie and I didn't recognize it, but uh that that penguin sounded pretty pissed off. Or even you Happy know, Feet. I, See Happy Feet? No. Okay. No, I don't have kids. Oh. Right. I did. That was a wild. That was a pretty I like that movie. Piece. Oh my god, Steve, you're getting so weak in your old age. Come on. Happy Feet. <laughs> Dancing penguins. What's <laughs> not to love? Could you not? Yeah, right. I mean, certainly the experience of watching the movie is different when you're watching your children watch the movie. All right. Okay. Anyway, here we and go. And the winner was Wright Stone, R E I T S T O E N, from the message boards. Good job. Congratulations. Did he, did he now? Did he say penguin or emperor penguin? Because I think this some for, for this. He said one, emperor penguin. Okay, yeah. I think you have to get. Yeah, they have to name the actual species. A lot of people I yeah. saw said penguins. Like, eh. yeah. For this one, you got to make it the get it exact. Yeah, come on, people, <laughs> and let's enact the same rule for this week's. Okay, who's who's that noisy? Okay, here is this week's. Who's that noisy? Well, thank you, Evan. Well, anytime. It's turned out to be quite a fun segment. It is a good segment. Jay, finish us off with a quote. I have a quote sent in by Rob Taylor from Wake Forest, North Carolina, from one of your favorite people, Steve, Christopher Hitchens. Chris Hitchens. He's one of mine, too. Don't <laughs> well, leave me out of this. We all like him. I remember uh, before I really started doing a lot of reading about Christopher Hitchens and getting into him, uh, Steve actually said, oh, my God, Jay, he's one of my heroes. And uh, that really inspired me to to learn all about this guy. And he is awesome. Anyway... Christopher Hitchens said, Doubt, skepticism, innovation, and inquiry are the only means by which wonder, beauty, awe, and symmetry will be discovered. Christopher Hitchens! It's a nice quote. (laughs) Hitch, as he's known to his friends. (laughs) Hello, Hitch. How are you? Well, Jay, you have an announcement to make? Yeah, Travis Roy from the Granite State Skeptics will be doing an investigation of an allegedly haunted location on Halloween night from 8 to 10 p.m., so what they're going to do is they'll be Twittering live, and you can uh, follow along at twitter.com forward slash Skeptics. That's for Granite State Skeptics. And uh, if the technology permits, they said they'll be doing streaming live video as well. And uh, right after they finish up on that investigation, they'll be meeting at midnight at the Hannah Dustin Memorial in Boscoin, New Hampshire to go over the results and taking questions. What Travis is a good, good guy. I'm sure they're going to have a lot of fun. Um, yeah, it's always actually, fun. But the, they're not going to stay up for the witching hours. I wouldn't. I wouldn't doubt that they're going to stay up really late and get kooky. Oh, you got to start. You got to stay up late until you start hallucinating from sleep deprivation. That's when the ghosts come that's out. Right around three o'clock in the morning, according <laughs> yeah. to Ed Warren. I mean, that's yeah. that's the best time when you're when you're half asleep and you know your, your brain Absolutely. starts taking over. Start to get some. You see all kinds of hypnagogia kicks in. It's awesome. Oh, forget about it. It's the Thanks, thanks everyone for joining me this week. Surely, yes, yeah, yeah. always it a good was, time. It was fun. And until next week, this is your skeptic's guide to the universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. 
For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kinetto and is used with permission. 